Welcome to Farmer Talk Radio. This podcast is focused on reimbursement challenges with clinical trials from the 2023 CRACO Clinical Research as a Care Option Conference. For more information on the CRACO Conference, editorial, podcasts, or webcasts, visit cracoevent.com. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. So this is about insurance challenges and clinical trials. It's a really important issue. And we felt it, was a, it would be amiss for us not to address some of the challenges with insurance and clinical trials. So I'm going to begin by asking Donna about the 50% issue. You had brought that up to me. And I thought it was really important to talk about that. So why don't you start with that and uh, sure. tell us about that. Sure. Um, we're, we're involved right now working for a very large cancer advocacy organization on, on um, barriers to access to clinical trials. And what, you know, maybe, maybe many of you know this, but, um, but most, most, many patients have to leave their system of care to get access to the clinical trial that they need, especially with matching, genomically matching trials. So the thing is, once you leave your, your system of care, your regular provider, you often have to go out of your market or out of your state to another provider. And when that happens, you're usually out of network in your insurance company. And what happens is when you go to these centers, they, um, they, you, they, they, they don't assess you for clinical trial. They do assess you for a clinical trial so you're eligible, but you quickly get handed off to patient financial services where they look at your insurance and call your insurance company, and the answer is almost always that you have to pay the difference between in-network and out-of-network care, which can be $100,000 easily. So when in our interviews with patients, um, and, and this is just a design problem of where patients have their coverage. So many patients, um, they said up to 50% of the patients that are eligible for the trial that want to go to an organization for the trial decline for financial reasons. And then, so that's commercial insurance, and that's just the way it's designed. And then on the Medicaid side of things, the way it works is, um, you know, there's state-based programs. So when a, when a Medicaid patient matches to a clinical trial someplace else in the country, their state Medicaid plan has to approve the provider to be in their network. And they usually have criteria like, I want the social security number of every one of your board members, and in some cases, they want the fingerprints of every one of their board members. So what hospital is going to give the social security number of their board members or the fingerprint of their board members? So what happens is Medicaid patients, they, even though they match to a trial um, and the organization is willing to take them, they, don't, they just don't have the ability for that pro their provider to get accepted. So it becomes a, a practical barrier that's a, a system design barrier for patients. That, and we don't think about that as... Um, as something to come up with. So, you know, closing the gap is one thing, and I know we're ha happy to have Lucy here, who, uh, it's not anybody's problem, it's just the way the system is designed. And it certainly cuts back on access to trials and enrollment for the AMCs, mostly, to get these patients. Okay, that was important for that, you know, we just make sure that everyone's aware of that in this room, for those of you who aren't, of course. Um, so let me begin, Lucy, with a question. Let's start with this. You know, what is the difference to you between bringing patients to a clinical trial versus bringing clinical trial operations to patients? Let's start with that. Uh, we can get your thoughts, Lucy, on that. Yeah, I love that question, and thank you for having me virtually. I can't see anyone, so <laughs> hopefully you can see me. Um, Right. When I think about um, 
improving quality, ensuring access, and making sure that members have the highest quality care that they, they have access to the highest quality care they can get, clinical trials is certainly an, an integral part of that. And when you think about the ways in which we've tried to bring trials and patients together, lots, lots of the time our efforts are focused on um, how do we bring a patient to a specific trial? So uh, pharma may come to us or a trial exists in our region and we may say, okay, how do we get more people? How do we find more people for this trial? I think from the payer perspective, we wanna think more about how do we bring the trial to the patient or the member? So instead of thinking about filling trials, we should think of it more as a quality of care mandate that um, looks at each individual member and asks, would this member be best served through a clinical trial and how can we facilitate that starting with how can we bring the, the trials to the members? How can we find the trial that's appropriate for the member? How can we help the provider get the member on the appropriate trial or even become a satellite clinic for a trial? So how can we decentralize the trials so we don't have to uh, deal as much with members crossing state lines or going out of network for care. Um, and then the cascade of questions that happens from there. But I think those are the two key starting points that I think really kind of change the way you think about clinical trials and trial enrollment. Okay, thank you. And Donna, did you have any further opinions on that question? Uh, no, really, just to say that, um, you know, the more trials can be offered where people live and where they have the ins their insurance coverage, it eliminates some of these barriers. And, and certainly, Lucy, there's a lot of interesting ways of sub-investigators and things. If I know you and I talked about the fact that finding trials for patients is harder than finding patients for trials, and that's what you're, you're talking about. Right. Okay. So I know that we're gonna talk about this sort of in the lens of cancer, and obviously there's lots of therapeutic areas, but for the sake of the, the few minutes that we have here, um, I wanted to ask you, Donna, a little bit more about the challenges patients face when trying to get access to, to clinical trials. If you can tell us a little bit more about sure. that. Sure. Well, you know, we, we all know for, I mean, Lucy's an oncologist, so Lucy, I feel like I'm intruding on your expertise here, but, uh, but you know, it's always urgent when a patient is on a, on a clinical trial, and oftentimes they've failed another line of therapy, so it's even more urgent for them to, so that's, the clock's always ticking. And then to find the right trial and have their physician help them find the right trial, it's all time consuming. And then, you know, you get the um, investigator on the phone and you find the trial you want, and then you get punted to patient financial services. Then they call your insurance company. You know, it's just the challenges are really time is running out. And then you find out that if you're out of network, um, it's, it's got a bit pretty, big price tag. So before you even get to that information, you've already gone through this hard trial finding sequence of activities. And I don't, Lucy, if you want to add anything. I mean, if you, we're, we're, we're talking about a systemic solution for clinical trial finding. And, you know, as a practicing oncologist, I can say even from a very highly evolved clinic with uh, resources and automated processes for trial identification, thinking about 
finding, understanding, and being able to enroll a patient on a trial takes a lot of an oncologist's time. And I think that that is one of the major barriers um, that oncologists who are, you know, uh, working very quickly to see many, many patients with cancer on in, on a daily basis, right? To take the time and and to be able to um, you know, seek the tr even think about a clinical trial sometimes is overwhelming and feels um, a little bit like you're you're sidetracking your day unless you have the the infrastructure already built in and a, you know, a well-oiled machine. And so from the perspective of where I'm sitting now as an oncologist, instead of you know, the, the hundreds of patients that I would see in my clinic, now I'm thinking about literally hundreds of thousands of patients across the country. Um, I'm trying to find the solution that leverages the potential for what we know is there, which is using automated AI, uh, natural process, la natural language processing, um, and, um, and auto, you know, automated processes that can very rapidly help solve the problem, help identify and, and um, streamline the process so that members can be on the trials that would benefit them. Thank you. Um, Donna, you talked to me uh, behind the scenes about working for the Leukemia Lymphoma Society, and just um, they have a call center, and even with their call center, I think you shared with me it can take 24 follow-ups, like just really getting into that reality, yeah. right? Right, right. They, they, they have um, th three different call centers, but one is set up just for clinical trials, and they track um, for them to help a patient find a trial takes 24 follow-up contacts. If you can, I, mean, you, I mean, you can believe that if you're in this world, but... Um, you know, it's nice that they're doing that, and, and many times when they get to the end of that, they can't make the final connection, but, um, but that's a lot of time, and how could a person ever do that themselves? They just can't. Um, so I know, uh, Lucy, you talked a little bit about some of the steps, but I wanted to ask you about um, your thoughts on demonstrating value of clinical trials um, and reducing healthcare costs and getting your thoughts on that. Well, so I, I'm I'm aware of the literature that's out there, and and Karen Adelson had her um, abstract at the ASCO Quality Conference. I think it was in 2020. There was another publication in the Journal of Oncology Practice. I think in 2021. And you know, there's there is evidence that when an individual enrolls on a clinical trial, there is savings. Um, cost savings to the payer and to the member themselves. Um, and that's very compelling. And if you think about the classical uh, value equation, value is quality per cost paid. If you decrease the denominator, you're going to increase the absolute outcome of that um, uh, equation. So value goes up. But what I um, struggle with is that cost alone should not be the reason that we are trying to get members on clinical trials. And I think if you take a, a, a cost-only approach or, or cost-centric cost approach, um, you run the risk of ending up with a partial solution or a solution that actually um, may not uh, include 
all of the various types of trials or the various ways in which this can be solved, because I think there are some obvious areas where there's a savings. There are other areas where um, it may be more costly. And so I think we need to be cautious, but I will say that the value proposition is there for sure. Thank you. So Donna, um, any further comments on that question, like steps that we can take? I know we only have yeah. a few minutes, but. Yeah. Um, you know, I think well, um, Carrie Adelson at Yale, who's now MD Anderson hired her now to be the head of their new value um, initiative. But um, I think replicating studies like that, I think she, she, was, she was able to work off this oncology care model. They had a lot of claims data, um, certainly um, working with payers. But I think um, you know, for trial sponsors, I think that's part of the story is um, it's an incentive for um, you to show that you bring value with the costs that you cover. And if that could be done again in cancer or done again with some other diseases, I think that would go a long way in, in advancing these discussions and, and certainly, Lucy, balancing cost with appropriateness too is, is it. But I, I guess I would encourage people to try to replicate studies like that and, and make the case to advance the value conversation because the barriers to access, which are care barriers that make clinical trials not possible, um, something has to be done about it because they're shut off as an option for many people. Mm -hmm. All right, um, my next question is around what can payers do to uh, promote or improve clinical trial enrollment? So Lucy, love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, and so anyone who knows me knows that I, I usually fly at 30,000 feet. So I like to put this in a framework, right? So when I think about what, what can the payers do, what can I do to, to help more members be on clinical trials, um, the key question that comes up for me is the sacrosanct relationship between the provider and their patient. And so as a payer, um, I want to think about how I can um, help our members identify when they're eligible for trials, what trials they might be eligible for, how we can facilitate that conversation with their provider, how we can facilitate enrollment on a trial if it means leaving their provider temporarily, how we can facilitate second opinions for clinical trials, and then um, how we can ensure that the provider-patient relationship is not inappropriately disintermediated by a well-meaning party uh, that is involved um, but certainly um, we take the approach the provider knows best, right? And so we wanna facilitate the conversations and facilitate the identification of the appropriate trials in the appropriate time, but we don't want to be the, we don't want to necessarily be the party that is driving a wedge or somehow um, disrupting this. Oh, okay, all right, thank you. Um, so Don, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have asked? Um, anything further you'd wanna share with the audience? No, but I, I'd be interested in any questions or comments from people in the audience that how, what's their level of awareness about this? And um, you know, have you thought about it or what, what, what's provoking your thoughts about this topic? We could call on Henry. <laughs> ah, thank you, Henry. I have Hi, a question. Dr. Oh. Oh. I'm over here. Sorry. Hey. Go for it. 
So I don't know if I'm gonna frame this correctly, but I'm curious, in the discussion around cost, you said the value proposition is there, and I'm wondering what is the value proposition? Be, I, I'm not sure I heard the patient in there, and so I was curious about that. Well, what, one, I, I could comment, if, if it costs less for a patient to go on a trial, and a patient is, is um, unable to proceed because of cost issues, can this value proposition close the gap and make, make access more available to a patient? Yeah, I think that's a really good response. And I was thinking to the earlier panel and some of the discussions we've had today is how much it costs to conduct clinical research. And so I was thinking, although I'm not sure I'm brave enough to ask it, but now that I'm standing up here, I will. Um, what is the role of the, health, of the providers, if you will, or the payers in offsetting the cost of where the research takes place. So not only to open access to get patients access to clinical research, but the, the entities that are, have the burden of the cost right now are the sites and the academic medical centers, et cetera, et cetera, right? I worked at Duke Clinical Research for many, many years. So is there a role that payers are supposed to provide further upstream in terms of helping to offset that cost? Lucy? Yeah, I mean, I would say that there are several parties involved that should help to offset the cost. I think the payer's role is to serve the members and to ensure that if the member goes out of state or is out of network and um, this is the right trial for them, perhaps the payers can be in a position where they can um, reach some form of sort of site neutrality, if you will, uh, for out of network on clinical trials, something like that. That's a possibility. I think the trial sponsors may have a responsibility to offset the cost of um, setting up sub eyes or satellite clinics and uh, ensuring that the right patients can get on their trials. So I think pharma has a role as well. Um, for trial sponsorship. And then just like uh, drug access, I think clinical trial access, um, in some ways, uh, we need to start thinking about what is the role of you know, advocacy groups, pharma, payers, policy drivers in, in all of this, right? To help uh, sort of skin this cat in multiple different ways. What are all the different ways in which we can help to offset the costs to the members and to society? Henry? Hi, uh, Dr. Winger, uh, this is Henry Way from Regeneron. I used to work for a health insurer. It's neither here nor there. Uh, the question I have is, is there any high performance network product or enhancement being contemplated at UHG or otherwise that would allow folks the choice or their plan sponsors, be it employers, Medicare Advantage plans, what have you, to actually have some level of access with a pr probably different plan design, what have you, but specifically restricted to trial access. I don't know if that's existed before it's been contemplated or discussed. Uh, I really like that question a lot. And um, you may know that I've been in my position now a year and a half, so that's like a day in United Healthcare speak. So <laughs> I am still in the process of um, learning the systems and sort of 
unraveling some of the knots that we've tied ourselves into and also trying to find a path forward uh, in a different economic and political setting, I think, than we've been in in, in past years. And for the high-performing network, uh, we are starting to put some serious thought into um, the criteria that we use to evaluate oncologists and not just oncologists in academic medical centers or large hospital systems, but all oncologists across country. And certainly um, clinical trials, clinical trial network offerings um, and availability will be part of that. That is in its infancy now. We are just starting to think about that and to build that in. So. I really love the question and I like that concept a lot. It's There's nothing actionable at this point in time. We do have um, our centers of excellence. We have, um, we're developing a first opinion service and we have second opinion services that, that members can take advantage of. And we also have our cancer support program, all of which help inform members about clinical trials and help them direct them to resources where they might be able to find clinical trials, but we just don't haven't formalized all of that in a, you know, network type of um, high performing network type of arrangement. Dr. Leiter, thank you so much. And Donna, thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. For more information about the Craco conference, editorial, podcast, or webcast, visit cracoevent.com. Thanks for listening.